This episode of The Cutting Room is sponsored by Funko Press, publishers of Make the Cut, written by Laurie Jane Coleman, ACE, and Diana Freeberg, ACE. This book guides you through the ins and outs of establishing yourself as a respected film and video editor. Visit focalpress.com and learn how you can make the cut. What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. Before we get into things, we have some very sad news. Yesterday, September 28th, 2010, it was announced that Sally Manke, editor of Quentin Tarantino's work, had passed away. This is a terrible loss to the film community, and everyone at Art of the Guillotine would like to send our condolences to the Manke family. Sally's work has changed the face of film editing, and she will be missed greatly. This is episode two of my interview with Andrew Weisblum. Andrew's most recent work, Black Swan, screened at the Toronto International Film Festival to rave reviews. This week, Andrew and I discussed The Fantastic Mr. Fox and The Darjeeling Limited. Now, there's a musical, or not a musical, but a, almost like a music video in the middle of the... Yeah, the, the, the Petey song. Yeah. Yeah. Was that a part of the original script? And how did you... Because it is cut very differently from the rest of the film. Yeah, it was, it was part of the original idea. It was always there. Um, I'm not sure when it was written and composed but there was always the idea for the PD song. PD was a character who expanded and contracted as we went along. He was mm-hmm. like the one good human and Jarvis Cocker voiced him. My involvement in the film was a little bit strange in that I was there for the original recordings and I was there for the sound edit, the dialogue edit. We didn't have the song at that time but basically just taking all the tracks that we had from Connecticut and cutting them like a radio show mm-hmm. with sound effects and so on. Well, as soon as we got through that pass, I had already committed to starting to work on The Wrestler. So I went off and did that while the storyboards were drawn, which were based on a lot of logistic things and shot design based on what Wes had in mind, but also on the puppets and you know what they could or couldn't build based on budget and limitations. And that whole process went through. There was an editor there who then left at a certain point. I came on back on after The Wrestler was done, which was right when they were getting ready to shoot. The puppets basically were being built all that time. And I think they had already started shooting a few things. They were maybe 5% into the shooting or something. But I came back in on that stage, and the song had already been recorded then. This is my long way of saying that. So I'm not entirely sure where, how that song itself developed, although it was, a little, it was kind of a homemade endeavor. Yeah. But how that scene was edited also changed in a number of ways, too. We knew it was going to be a, kind of a storytelling device to take you from this one point to the other with Mr. Fox robbing from all the farmers. It was a little section based yeah. on the book. And then basically the, the farmers go nuts on them after that point. I think it, Things escalate immediately after that song. But the Petey character was also, at one point, we had the idea, not that long after I came on, to kind of bring him in as a narrator from the beginning of the movie through yeah. because that song really worked as a narration. Mm-hmm. And we thought, well... That's a contrivance or a conceit that is a big part of a lot of this style of movie. If you think of like mm-hmm. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Reindeer and the, those Rankin-Bass yeah. movies, that there's always kind of this Burl Ives narrator character who also usually sings at some yeah. point. Jimmy Cricket, all those characters. So how could we use Petey like that? So we explored that for a while. In the end, it didn't really contribute anything that new or interesting, or so it went away. It was interesting to try and figure out what that references, what that character was, and how we were using him editorially. 
because it, it is a kind of a little standalone moment in the movie, mm-hmm. which I think works. Oh, yeah. It, definitely because it sits on the wide and it gives us this whole new perspective of exactly the film. It, right, exactly. It's a new kind of tableau for it, mm-hmm. a little palette there that is not part of the rest of the movie and it's a little energized and it's kind of fun to see all the little puppets dancing and you know it's, it's great it was a lot of energy and it was a good it has a good joke at the end of it too so mm-hmm. it, was, it was a funny little beat there was a there was this whole notion of the siege where the all the farmers wait outside the hole forever yeah. and this was kind of a fun way to address that animation it can be very structured uh, in mm-hmm. the sense that the footage comes to you and it might be shot based on say Wes's ideas yeah and then it might not work so how did you work with the animation department to make sure you got the best well some of the things I already talked about yeah. as a as kind of a device was was these were these labs that we did which is which is what we called them where Wes would would kind of act out mm-hmm. like, or whoever was in the room at the time mm-hmm. would, would, <laughs> would, act, would act things out uh, uh, you know it was always Wes that the kind of set the stage for that stuff and that was the tool but then there was there was a whole other level of dialogue between mark the main animation director and the specific animators or westwood they would email their thoughts back and forth to each other and get on the phone or have a conversation and and west would always have a live tap of what was going on so that he could see it and he was always kind of stationary and reachable at one spot so there was always a dialogue going on instead of him hopping around from stage to stage it was it made a lot more sense logistically for him to be in one place that we could always talk to him and i'm not sure how that's different from other processes mm-hmm. but it seemed to work for us and when a shot didn't work in some context there were Usually you get to, because the shot takes several days, you see you see along the way that it's going a little south. And then there would be an immediate dialogue about what we could do. Mm-hmm. And if it meant a pickup, that we would, you know, step back in the animation 40 frames or something and start from where it start to go wrong or whatever it is. And kind of bouncing back and forth in the shot as we went until we had it right, depends on how complicated the shot yeah. is. But sometimes the shot still worked well enough on its own, even if it wasn't the original idea. So then it's more about, okay, how do we change the other shots we haven't done yet to accommodate this? Or how do we reshoot it or rethink it? Because even reanimating it exactly as conceived, we see why it's Mm -hmm. not going to work to have the puppet do that. It doesn't tell us that. Like sometimes there there were definitely certain puppets that were more expressive than others. Mm -hmm. And you could draw a storyboard that suggests something in terms of a character's reaction that is not conveyed by the puppet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the puppet just doesn't, its yeah. eyes just don't go that big, yeah. or its mouth doesn't smile. You know, Mr. Fox couldn't really smile. So yeah. how do you show Mr. Fox happy? Yeah. That, that, well, he lost his tail too, so he, he can't wag his tail. He can't wag his tail. <laughs> it's just, how do you figure out how to make him expressive? Yeah. Now, in the Darjeeling project, you kind of touched on this, that there's sort of style start developing in the Darjeeling project. But I was going to ask you, was there an influence from the Indian style of movie making? Because in a few shots, or in a few cuts even, there's sort of this opening wide shot, and then it zooms in, which is very sort of an Asian style of... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if there were any literal references that that Wes had in that sense from a from Asian or Indian mm-hmm. cinema I mean if that came up it was before I was editing the film but 
but I do know there were other references that weren't far off from that. And there was, he wanted a certain, I mean, sloppiness is the wrong word, but he wanted a certain spontaneity to it that wasn't overly polished visually. I think he kind of felt like his mise-en-scene and his, rightly so, is, is so ripe and developed and, you know, just the frame is always so loaded with all this visual information that if you took that and made it a, you know, what spontaneity and the location that we have there can you throw on top of that just to make it alive and crazier yeah. instead of kind of framed and stilted, which happened all the time. There's all kinds of crazy stuff going on when we were shooting. But in terms of the zooms and things that you're talking about, there, there were definitely um, 70s films that films that he liked from his youth that I also liked from my youth that we could talk about all the time as a reference. One that came up all the time was Bad News Bears. Okay. You go back and you watch that movie and it's just, technically, it's a mess. You know, like from cut to cut, nothing ever matches. Mm -hmm. Lighting's always off. The kids are always in different positions. The shots are all just kind of, it just jumps through stuff. With, it's like, how'd they get there? Like, what what's going on? But it's still... We loved it, <laughs> you know, as kids. It's still fun to yeah. watch. It's not always about the precision. It's about the tone, too. Mm -hmm. And some of that stuff, he borrowed from that notion, Cassavetes, too. That there, there was a certain, a certain kind of energy, spontaneity there that that implies. Like, a zoom was a big part of this freedom in, the, yeah. in that form in the 70s that then suddenly felt like somebody decided somewhere the way that it was lazy or inelegant or sloppy yeah. and then it disappeared, but it's pretty fun and energizing too and feels new again when you see it sometimes so but it also does connote another era or another kind of filmmaking well, i was gonna ask did you actually go to india or wherever they shot with them yeah india <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was i was there for two and a half so i was there for the whole shoot i flew in with the on the same plane with bill murray which is a pretty crazy heady experience to suddenly be in india with people like that you know i was on a I was on a Jet Airways plane from, from Mumbai to Jodhpur with, it was myself and James Hamilton, the photographer, and then middle of a sea of all these commuting Indians was Bill Murray sitting there <laughs> in the middle of the plane, which is, which is just very surreal. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, but it was great. And it was, you can't, you, just, yeah. you can't compare it to anything. And it was great. And it was yeah. why he wanted to make a movie there because he had been there already on just the, sense of adventure just being there that that, yeah. that the sense that anything can happen was exciting to him and interactions with people that are just confounding and i guess that india was a great place to be and we all had a great experience and we loved it there it sometimes presented its challenges in terms of getting things done on a work level like we had a big electricity problem for about three or four days that prevented me from turning on my equipment which you know is what it is, but you could never get frustrated with any of that stuff. It was going to happen eventually. It's just, you just roll with life there, yeah. you know, and I think that's why we were there. And you saw that in the footage all the time yeah. when we were shooting, where, where Adrian and Jason, there was one take like early on in the shoot where they were just shooting a scene and, you know, there were 20 extras or so behind them and then two or three of the guys back there got bored just starting to have a full volume conversation. <laughs> And, and Adrian just kind of looked over at Wes and, and he looked at and we, they both said, well, that's why we're here. Yeah. That's, that's what it is, you know. We want that kind of energy. Spontaneity. Yeah.
Now, the relationship between the brothers is key to pulling off the film. When you viewed the rushes, what did you look for within the three actors' performances to make sure that these elements would work? Um, well, performance-wise, between the three of them, there wasn't really a lot of challenge in terms of that. They became really close. We all, they all lived together in this house, which is where I would work. And Owen and Jason already knew each other, and obviously. And Adrian blended into that very quickly, um, and they spent a lot of time together. So the familiarity between them wasn't something, I mean, they're such good actors, it wasn't. And it was so, such a comfortable set, and a casual set. You know, there was no makeup, there was no, none of that's trailers and stuff, that was the design of it. But it was just, they did their own stuff. So everybody was very tight. So in terms of a sense of family or brotherhood with them, it wasn't, nobody, we didn't have to struggle to figure any of that out. And editorially, that wasn't a big challenge. Wes really found that stuff on set, you know. It was more about picking the right takes and then, and then taking the, just looking at the scope of the movie and figuring out what fit that or what didn't and what took their tension or closeness in the right directions when we needed to when they started to rip apart or started to come back together or, you know it, it wasn't but it wasn't a challenge that was probably one of the easier things the performance was not really there were no debates about mm -hmm. now i noticed that a lot of the film was shot in profile because of the tightness of the train did you find any difficulty cutting that because you're essentially shifting back and forth not really not that not that i can recall that didn't that didn't really present any difficulties. The di you know the difficulties were in, on that movie were were just having enough coverage and footage and the scenes that were more complicated, like the river scene or the or the dining car scenes or certain things that where we had to get the shots were pretty meticulously designed. Yeah. In that movie, even though we did a lot of things editorially with them, figuring out that aspect of it was not really a problem. I mean. We also, the train, we're done with the train halfway through that movie. So it, it, we weren't that confined after a while. It kind of busts open at a certain point. Yeah. And the train stuff was just interesting footage more than anything. It just didn't feel like anything else I'd seen. All right, I'm going to stop the interview there. I know it's a bit early, but at this point, Andrew and I begin discussing The Wrestler. And I want you to hear the whole thing next week in part three of my interview with Andrew Wiseman. I'd like to thank Andrew for allowing me to interview him. I'd also like to thank the Manhattan Edit Workshop, Jenny McCormick, and my producer, Lauren Woodcock. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.